Welcome to the Legal Download Podcast, a rundown of the latest issues impacting your business from Kelly Dry. This is Heather Teig uh, from Kelly Dry and Warren. I'm here with international trade partner, Brooke Ringel. And we're going to talk a little bit today about Brooke's career in international trade and sort of the, the mystery that is international trade. Hi, Brooke. Hey, Heather. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm getting excited for the holiday. Yeah, speaking of holidays and packages and shipping, <laughs> and, uh, you would think like international trade seems like a pretty straightforward idea, right? Like stuff going into the coming into the country and things going out of the country. But, you know, in actuality, as we've, I guess, come to realize, there's a whole mechanism going on behind the scenes most people don't know about. And there's a whole I guess, slew of regulations and laws around international trade. And that's that's sort of what you do at Kelly. That's why, that's why I'm here. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm interested a little bit um, about how, how you got into international trade because it's not, I always say like, I didn't wake up and become, decide I wanted to become a legal marketer. I'm sure you didn't, you know, at five years old say, I want to be a trade attorney. So, so how'd you get here? It was close. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) No, I, um, you know, I I wish I could say it was, it was a grand scheme. um, But as you, as you said, you know, it was, it was not actually carefully plotted out, I have to admit, but it also wasn't, you know, just a happy accident. Um, I had a, a, I had a couple of sort of parameters that uh, that have guided me throughout my career. I've always been interested in foreign policy, in international politics, in the law. My father was a lawyer, um, and I always figured I would follow in his footsteps. Um, and so when I was in college, I did a little bit of all of that. Um, I studied uh, political science and international affairs. Um, I actually minored in Russian history, spent some time in Moscow. Um, I studied economics and um, and, you know, uh, besides the Russian, all of that has really um, come into play in, in my career now. Um, when I came to D.C., I spent a couple of years working as a litigation paralegal and actually realized that I surprisingly enjoyed the procedure of, of law um, and sort of the, the rules and regulations and uh, detail that goes into the practice of law. And in law school, I sort of continued on that international relations, international affairs trajectory. I was uh, active in the National Security Law Society um, and uh, and sort of picked, stay, stayed on that track as much as I could. I was a summer associate with Kelly Dry in 2008 and spent some time right after graduation, about a year right after graduation, actually litigating at the uh, D.C. Office of Attorney General. And when I started back at the law firm after that stint at, at OAG, I really started doing a little bit of everything. I I uh, worked with uh, our litigation practice. I worked with a, a, a couple of different people. And I started getting involved in the international trade practice, primarily starting with export controls and compliance, which is a really interesting area of the law as well, a more transactional counseling type of practice. And I I really just enjoyed the, the international trade area. 
and actually spent a couple of years after that at, at pharma, which is the trade association for research-based pharmaceutical manufacturers. And that's where I really got into the trade policy side of things. I was an international, international advocacy. Um, so essentially a lobbyist, but with foreign gov- governments instead of our own, um, working on a lot of the key trade agreements at the time. That was when we were negotiating the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the transatlantic trade and investment partnership. That was the US-EU deal that has since gone by the wayside. Um, so it was a really, really interesting time to be in that space. It was a really interesting industry to work with. And when I came back to Kelly Dry and started doing more uh, trade policy work, I found that that was um, trade policy and trade remedies work. I found that that was really the great, a great intersection for all of these experiences that I had had. The It, it, it took on, uh, took you know, it's it's part litigation, part trade policy, part international affairs, part economics. Um, so it's a little bit of everything all rolled into one. And uh, and I've loved every day of it. So I remember back in those days when you were a new associate, um, unassigned as as we call it. Um, and just remember, I remember your hustle. But I've worked with you now for for about nine years, and I would say. For me, even working closely with our trade remedies attorneys, it's it still is a little bit of a mystery to me. You know, you mentioned working on trade remedies. Like, what for our audience? What does that mean? And and you know, how do you work with clients? Like, what is the world of trade remedy? That is a great question, and it is. Um, I, I think uh, you know the answer to that is something that I take for granted living in this space every single day. But, but really, trade remedies is is. Is it's a complex practice, but it's a pretty straightforward tool that we have in our uh, U.S. law. It's a type of case that allows a domestic industry to petition the U.S. government for relief from unfairly traded imports. It's it's just that simple. So in these kinds of cases, a domestic industry will file a petition alleging that a foreign exporter or foreign producer of a product, let's say a widget, has been what we call dumping those widgets in the United States. And that simply means selling them in the United States at less than fair value. The domestic industry can also allege that that those foreign producers have been unfairly subsidized by their governments. And there are certain types of subsidies that are uh, prohibited or or deemed unlawful um, according to uh, international legal agreements. And those allegations, what we call the dumping allegations or the subsidy allegations, are investigated by two agencies, two U.S. government agencies, uh, the U.S. International Trade Commission and the Department of Commerce. And that those agencies investigate the allegations for about a year. And if there's, uh, if the Commerce Department, which looks at whether there's been dumping or subsidization, finds that there has uh, been that kind of activity. And if the International Trade Commission, which looks at what's going on with the domestic industry, finds that the domestic producers have been materially injured, harmed by that dumping and subsidization, then the domestic producers get what we call trade orders, uh, dumping orders or countervailing duty orders. Um, and, and really all that means is it's a, it's a rule put in place um, by the Commerce Department that imposes duties on imported products at the border. Um, and the duties are in an amount necessary to offset the unfair pricing. The, like I said, these are, these are 
This is a, a fairly straightforward remedy. It's a complex investigation, but if it's successful, it's really a, a wonderful, long-lasting remedy and relief for uh, an injured domestic industry. The orders stay in place for five years. They're renewable in five-year increments. And so uh, trade remedies can be a really effective tool for domestic manufacturers that have been harmed by unfairly traded imports. The return on the investment that the domestic industry makes in these cases is really tangible because successful cases can restore fair pricing to the market. Domestic producers can see improved sales and revenue, and it really does make a difference to um, to U.S. manufacturers' bottom lines. And I just want to say, you know, beyond what beyond trade remedies. That's that's a big part of what I do. That's a big part of what our practice does. But it isn't all the what we do. And 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 you talked about this a little bit in the beginning. You know, what is this world of international trade? Well, <laughs> for us and our practice, trade remedies is a big part. But there's other things too. So, and really, the way I think about it is that the work that we do, that I do, that we do for our international trade clients, is really driven by their business, our clients' business interests, and and it's necessarily tailored to what our clients need to achieve commercial set success. So, of course, there's the, there are the ADCVD actions that I've just described, um, anti-dumping, countervailing duty actions on behalf of, of domestic producers that have been harmed in the marketplace uh, by competition with unfairly traded imports. But perhaps it, there's, you know, our clients have a need on, uh, on the export side. So we also advise clients on um, compliance with the broad range of um, export regulations and the export uh, compliance rules and and that regime, along with the sanctions that are imposed uh, and create rules for and, and restrictions on, on exporting or interacting with certain players or countries abroad. We also advise clients on import compliance issues. Um, what sorts of challenges are they facing in terms of how they interact with customs and border protection? And what can we do to help them mit- mitigate import risk or reduce tariff liability? And then, you know, more broadly, we also work to advance the interests of individual companies or broad industry groups with respect to uh, trade policy matters like uh, trade agreement negotiation and implementation, proposed legislation affecting U.S. company trade, um, and special programs like the Section 232 uh, tariff program on steel and aluminum or the Section 301 investigations on imports from China or on a number of different um, uh, other other issues that we've seen in the past few years. So, and of course, then as a lawyer, I look at all of the litigation that's possible in all these areas as well. And um, some of the the, case, the, the court work, um, casework that has to be done um, in furthering our clients' interests. So there's a broad range of, of uh, counseling and litigation that we uh, that we do for our clients to support them and allow them to be um, effective competitors um, and grow their business uh, both domestically and abroad. Yeah, so I think I think for U.S. manufacturers, right, like staying competitive in the global marketplace is really um, their primary focus. And so, so going back to the injury, I guess, of of dumped or subsidized imports, like you think about how, how does a company know when um, it's being 
when goods are being dumped or when when they're experiencing injuries. So so I think about like they could be losing profitability, but but that could be caused by by 50 different things. How, how do they know when to come to you for help? And, and you know what what are the hallmarks that they look for to say, <clears throat> you know, I, I think there's unfair trade going on here. Yeah, that's that's exactly the right question to ask, Heather. So, you know, I talked a little bit about um, in these trade remedies cases, the work that we have to do before the Commerce Department and before the International Trade Commission. We have to prove that there's been dumping or subsidization, and we have to prove that there's been injury. So, a U.S. manufacturer, a company that's that's going about its business day to day, trying to make sales, isn't necessarily going to know if a foreign competitor, if the imports are are being dumped as defined by the law, right? That's for that's for the lawyers to figure out. But but a company will know if it's being undersold by the imports in the marketplace. Um, and that can be indicative of dumping, but, but really it's about, you know, where, what are you hearing from your customers about the price offers from the imports? Where are your customers going? Are they going to imports? And what effect is that having on your business? And, and so when companies come for, to us for help, we usually look at a couple of things. We say, okay, are the imports from one or more countries growing in the market? Are you hearing more about imports? Are you seeing them in day-to-day sale, sales competition? Um, are you losing customers to, to the imported product? Are the imports underselling you? And is that causing you to either lower your price to compete with the import and keep that particular sale or sales? Are you losing sales to imports because you just can't sell at that price, that low price, or both? And is that lost revenue uh, to your company having a negative effect on your operating operations and profitability? Um, so any U.S. company, any U.S. Um, manufacturer will know what that feels like, will know if, if they're experiencing those basic elements of the market. You'll know what the competition looks like. You'll know what the marketplace looks like. And so those are the kinds of conversations we have with our clients early on. You know, just, just tell, us, tell us what you're experiencing. Tell us what you're happening. Tell us what you're seeing. Tell us what you're hearing from your customers. Um, uh, that helps us sort of put the big picture together. And not coincidentally, all of these pieces um, are actually consistent with the legal elements that we need to prove for injury before the International Trade Commission. So the International Trade Commission, as a matter of law, is going to look at import volume, is going to look at import price, and is going to look at the impact of the volume and the price of the imports on the U.S. producers of the same product. Um, and and that's the, those are the kinds of things we talk about in a trade case. So when we first sit down with a client and the client starts telling us the story, we're already sort of piecing together what this is going to look like down the road when we get to the point of filing a petition. And, you know, another thing I want to I just say is normally the conversations aren't you know, don't quite line up exactly, right? It's not usually, you know, companies aren't coming to us and saying, okay, here are these elements that we've been experiencing. Now we're ready to file a case. Usually it's something as simple as we are getting crushed by imports. We don't know what to do. Please help us. And that's, that's really where the conversation starts. Um, 
And as we dig deeper, we sit up, put all these pieces together. But those are the kinds of things you're going to want to be looking for. Um, you know, what are what does the import volume look like? Has it increased over time? Um, what are what are the imports pricing pricing it? Are they pricing you out of sales? Are they pricing you out of the market? And what is that? What kind of effect is that having on your business? And sometimes it looks like it's happening, right? But you have to wait to make sure. That's right. So sometimes even, you know, imports can be coming in um, at extremely low prices and having an immediate impact, but perhaps we haven't seen the um, the trend over time. Um, and the ITC, the International Trade Commission, will typically look at a three year period. And so, you know, sometimes we'll we'll see the we'll see the injury on its way, but we'll want to develop the case a little more over time till we get to that point where we can tell a story that coincides with that three year period that the uh, the International Trade Commission can look at. Or alternatively, we, the, the law also allows the domestic industry to file a case on what's called the threat of material injury, which is exactly what it sounds. We haven't had material injury over the past three years, but we see it happening. It's starting to happen. It's imminent. And, that's, and that, there's, a, there's relief available for domestic industries experiencing that as well. Are, are there industries that are targeted? And then, you know, are, are, do the trends play out over time or do they change Yeah, you know, the short answer is um, no, there are not typically specific industries that experiencing experiences. And the the reason why this kind of unfair import competition can be experienced by almost any industry is because it can happen or this this trade remedies, I should say, are available to any any industry that has experienced competition with low priced imports that have been able to make inroads and take market share because the products being sold, the U.S. product and the importer product being sold, are largely interchangeable and purchasers are price sensitive. I mean, I'm sure you can think of, you know, you know, five things off the top of your mind um, where, you know, you're shopping, you, you're, and, and really you just want the lowest price product because it's this all the same to you or fairly simpler. Oh, um, exactly. Similar I, had enough, to, right? I had to buy a TV the other day. And right. I was like, I want, I want the cheapest one I can get. Right, right. And so, you know, just in terms of the, of the historically, the cases have been filed. Um, you know, it's, it's a, the, the cases that have been filed historically, it reflects this, right? So you've got, um, uh, everything from upstream industrial goods like steel. There are obviously a ton of steel cases, um, uh, on, you know, on various types of steel, upstream steel products um, that have, have sought trade relief, uh, various plastic products, plastic uh, inputs, and chemical inputs. Um, so some of these really, uh, you know, semi-finished um, industrial goods. And then even down, you know, on all the way down to downstream finished consumer goods, paper clips, metal filing cabinets, bedroom furniture, uh, nails. I mean, things that, that, you know, we use on a day-to-day basis um, and everything in between, agricultural and food products. Um, so there's a, there's a really, really broad range of, of products that can be impacted by unfair import competition. And these trade remedies um, are fortunately available to, to any domestic industry um, that, that needs them. Um, there's no restriction in the law about what domestic industries can seek relief um, as long as the, the petitioners are able to demonstrate injury and the existence of an unfair trade practice. Um, and then you asked about what trends or, you know, what, what kinds of trends we're seeing. 
And I just wanted to spend a minute talking about a really notable trend um, that we're seeing or we've seen in the past several years. Um, and this is this is new trade cases that are related to or follow-on cases to existing trade orders. So the most direct example of this is what we call the whack-a-mole problem. And in those cases, you have a, a set of trade orders. So you've had a successful trade case on imports of a product from one country or a set of countries. And as those imports recede from the market in, in terms of volume or price at higher levels because they're required to, because the trade orders force them to, to sell at fair market prices, then you have new imports from other countries that essentially come in to replace the original group. Uh, and they, they essentially fill, I don't want to say a gap because it's not a hole in the market. The market is, is, is satisfied, but they come in to fill that low price band and, and capture market share from the domestic producers. Um, and there's a variation on this theme. You could have a specific product type or a producer that's excluded for a number of reasons from uh, a prior successful case, uh, and that producer or particular product comes in um, after the anti-dumping or countervailing duties are imposed, uh, orders on a particular country that's revoked um, after a five-year sunset review, um, and those imports subsequently increase. So um, it's a it, it it's an the trend is that you'll see repeat cases or subsequent cases on some of the same products or even some of the same countries as the uh, as as time goes on because the products remain price sensitive the competition remains there the products remain interchangeable and the foreign imports see an opportunity to to capture market share from the domestic industry so this is not a new phenomenon, but it's becoming more common. And why is that? The, the answer is really very broadly U.S. macroeconomic conditions. Um, so as the U.S. economy thrived and expanded over the past several years, setting the COVID-related downturn aside, demand in many sectors grew and U.S. pricing for manufactured goods remained high relative to other countries. And so the imports saw an opportunity to increase their own production and revenue by increasing exports to the United States. They gained sales and market share through undercutting U.S. producer prices. Are we sensing a theme here? Yeah. <laughs> um, it sounds like the U.S. is a pretty attractive market. It's a very attractive market. And again, it has been even through the COVID downturn, and it has been in recent years much more attractive relative to the rest of the world. That's That continued in 2020 despite COVID. That's continued into 2021 despite COVID. And the import volumes themselves have been somewhat suppressed in 2021 due to these various supply chain disruptions, um, due to high freight costs. But foreign production has continued and the U.S. remains this very attractive market. So because of all of that, we expect to see a resurgence in imports across industries as U.S. market access eases, as it becomes easier to access U.S. customers. Companies that have enjoyed some breathing room with some anti-dumping duty orders in place 
um, are likely to face new low-priced import competition from new countries um, or even from new products, from other product lines that they have. Uh, because the U.S. does remain a very attractive mar- market relative to the rest of the world. And with this, the broad nature of global trade flows and globalized production in, in uh, almost all industries, there are a broad number of countries uh, with, that, that would like to export here. So we think that this trend is going to continue and, uh, and the U.S. Uh, macroeconomic conditions are to thank for that. Just playing devil's advocate here, like what do you say to companies or individuals that, you know, sort of cry protectionism or are concerned that that trade remedies sort of hamper free trade? You hear about a lot about like the, let the markets sort themselves out. My response would be that trade remedies and free trade are are not incompatible. On the contrary, our international trading system works best when everyone plays by the rules. There's a common misconception that trade remedies protect an industry by preventing competition with other with imports by protecting the domestic industry but really the, the purpose and the outcome of US trade remedy law and by the way US trade remedy law stems from international agreements these are international rules established uh, under the World Trade Organization that are designed to address cross-border predatory pricing behavior. Every member of the World Trade Organization has a right to implement these trade remedy laws, and most do. And the purpose of these rules is really simply to require imports to trade at fair market prices. It doesn't kick anyone out of the market. It doesn't Put up a wall at the border. What these what these laws do are uh, restore fair conditions of competition to the market. So the market is operating freely, uh, but it's also operating fairly, and that's the important distinction here. And and, and why trade remedies are critical to ensuring that this kind of cross border predatory pricing behavior is not allowed to to run rampant. And it, it you know it serves an important purpose in our in our day-to-day lives, right? I mean, we all have, ex- what, what is the, uh, you know, what, are, what is everyone talking about today? China. And why are so many domestic industries struggling with Chinese competition? Well, it's because China does not always play by the rules. We're, we're talking about issues such as, uh, you know, extensive subsidization, market distortions caused by state-owned enterprises, market access restrictions so that U.S. exporters don't have the same access to the Chinese market as Chinese exporters have to the U.S. market. Things like forced technology transfer, which is the, and and stolen intellectual property, which is uh, the basis for the Section 301 tariff action implemented by the Trump administration. So these are serious, these these actions, um, this inability to play by the rules has really um, distorted and disrupted global trade flows and created supply chains that are not necessarily based on comparative advantage, which is what the free market would, would ex- you would expect from a free market system, but rather on industrial policies that have, that have propped up sectors in China from mining to advanced technology. And so what, you know, the trade remedy, trade remedies laws are, uh, are really a surgical tool to allow a 
domestic industry, um, from our perspective, a U.S. industry, to take some action in response to that kind of behavior. Domestic industries, regardless of the home market, whether whether it's the U.S. or any other market, uh, must have a remedy to combat these predatory pricing uh, behaviors that do cause actual harm to to competition. You mentioned supply chains, and um, you know we we've all been hearing about supply chain backups and why they're happening, and it seems like it's sort of the perfect storm of every single reason on earth. But <clears throat> how has COVID or the COVID pandemic affected your clients, or you know, or your overall practice? It's it has affected everyone and everything. Um, you know that that is certainly not not news. You know, but I think it's important for us to think and understand why why this has happened, and that it there's not really one party or one piece of the supply chain to blame, but that there's really this uh, sort of unusual confluence of factors that have caused the situation that we're in. So it started with this supply and demand mismatch at the beginning of, of COVID. As COVID was, was hitting and facilities were closing and cities were closing and governments were closing, the, you know, the global logistics space, right? The global logistics participants saw this happening and also pulled back, right? So there was a, there was a, a, a pullback on the manufacturing of shipping containers and cargo vessels. There was a, a significant portion of the global ocean fleet that was idle because the, the, the fleets were expecting trade to collapse, but trade actually grew. And U.S. consumer spending was stimulated. There was growing demand for goods instead of services, and essentially the opposite of what everyone expected to happen to happen happened. So, at the same time, you had rolling port closures. We had labor shortages that were severely impacting what was moving around the world. There was port congestion that was caused by the container and vessel shortages. Do we all remember the Suez Canal blockage in June? Oh, yeah. <laughs> of, yep, yep. Right? That, that tied everything up, and it, it, it tied up containers that were already in short supply. We've essentially moved into a mode of you know, floating warehouses, and, and that in turn created all these distorted market incentives like premiums being paid for debt high containers to return to Asia so they could be refilled. Unfortunately, the port delays and these labor shortages continue. Labor shortages at ports, trucker shortages, rail worker shortages, there are labor shortages at manufacturing facilities, domestic and foreign. This is all having a real effect on U.S. companies. If Even if a U.S. producer can find the, the goods it needs, whether those are finished goods or inputs for its U.S. production. There are major delays in shipping. They're paying steep prices. Uh, listen, freight used to hardly be a consideration, but it's really, really high now, especially when you're talking about containerized cargo. A, a single delayed part can hold up an entire factory, everything from gears to semiconductors to packaging materials, the entire supply chain, 
both globally and within the U.S. Um, are entirely gummed up. Um, and then, of course, that affects consumers. So we're seeing very long lead times for certain durable goods like furniture and appliances that can't reasonably ship by air. If you had any plans of remodeling your house, order your appliances now. You won't get them for nine months. And, you know, to the administration's credit, President Biden has really prioritized this issue and, and tried to fix certain bottlenecks, like negotiating longer hours and less restrictive stacking rules at West Coast ports. But as I've just described, these problems aren't just the port of Long Beach or aren't just a labor shortage at a particular, uh, particularly busy junction. These problems are so various and so pervasive that this will take a really long time to unjam. But beyond these, these massive shipping distortions, so you also asked sort of how this is affecting individual clients, what's, what's really interesting and also exacerbating the supply and demand mismatch a little bit is that many, most U.S. manufacturers were declared essential during the pandemic. They never shut down. And so as the supply chain slowed to a screeching halt, U.S. manufacturers were still churning things out. They were still finding workers to get the job done. They were still trying to make make this all work and keep the U.S. economy afloat. And that has also exacerbated this, this supply-demand uh, mismatch. I mean, think about, think about some industries, industries where we actually saw growing demand during COVID, right? You had uh, construction accelerated because the traffic slowed down. There wasn't as much traffic on the highway because people weren't going to offices. There were school closures. Um, plastics and other materials used in PPE and medical equipment became in really high demand. So you had, you had U.S. manufacturers that were keeping the economy alive and going while we were all working from home and, uh, and, and not able to get the inputs that they needed to move their production along or to get their goods on trucks out where it needed to go and, and cargo vessels. So, so this is, you know, we're, we, we were dealing with that in 2020. We're still dealing with that now. Um, we're hoping that this will clear up in 2022, but this is, this is going to take a long time. Unfortunately, I wish I had better news. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, it's, it's so interesting to me that sort of, you know, things you never really thought about are now impacting everyone's lives. I mean, we've seen shortages in one or two industries and they've been sort of temporary, but this just seems to be affecting every, you know, sector of the market all at exactly. once. Yeah, and, um, exactly. It's crazy times to be alive, Brooke. <laughs> I'm <laughs> telling you. Yeah. So I just, I want to close more on, you know, like on a personal note, I think it's really interesting, um, you know, sort of talking about how you got into uh, international trade, but, you know, I, I've seen you uh, again, start as an associate and, and make your way up to partner, you're a successful female partner. You know, I, I just am interested in sort of, you know, I've heard you speak on panels about how young professionals can succeed, you know, in law or international trade and, and sort of, you know, for, for our listeners, what, what advice would you give to lawyers that are interested in this field but are maybe daunted by it? Because it, it is somewhat of a, a mystery, I think. It's, it's not as tangible as just, say, straight litigation, right? You know, what, what advice would you give to people who are interested in this field? 
Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I do love mentoring and speaking on panels and working with young attorneys who are you know, just getting into this field or even other areas of practice. Um, I think it's a really interesting time to be a, to be a young attorney. And so, you know, one of the things I, I always say is, which is, (laughs) I certainly, if I gave myself this advice when I was 22 or 24, it would be very difficult for me to follow, but I always say, take your time. Uh, you know, I think that there's a, there's a sense of urgency for young, intelligent, ambitious uh, attorneys wanting to really get deep into their field and be successful. And that doesn't happen overnight. So, so at, you know, the early stage in any attorney's career is, is, is the time to be learning to be absorbing everything and to practice, practice writing, practice presenting, practice arguing, practice strategizing, learn how to manage a product, a project. Those are all really, this is, this is your opportunity to learn the practice of law, which is different than what you learned in law school. So you're, you're starting a new phase of your, of your professional experience and recognize the power of the, recognize the power of, of experienced attorneys, of um, senior attorneys who can give you guidance about their professional experience, about their career. I mean, I am eternally grateful to the mentors that I've had here at Kelly Dry, who taught me everything I know and continue to teach me things that I don't know about international trade. And that's, that's, more valuable than, than, um, you know, any law degree in, in a lot of ways. The second thing that I like to tell new or uh, young attorneys is to be open-minded, to try new things. You never really know what is, you know, where your career is going to go or what you might be interested in. So, you know, I, like I said, I was always interested in international affairs, but frankly, coming out of law school, I didn't know what that would look like as a practicing attorney. I didn't know how one interest would translate into another. And I didn't know that until I started as a, an assigned junior associate here and said, huh, let me check out this international trade thing and figure out what it's all about. And it turns out it was really a great fit for me. But I really wouldn't have been able to put those pieces together unless I had been open-minded about trying new things. Um, so this is this is the, the you know the, the early stages of one's career is an opportunity to figure out, okay, do I do I want to practice law in a law firm? If I'm interested in international trade, you know, for those people and for those young attorneys or even young professionals who maybe aren't attorneys interested in international trade, there are a million ways to to be successful in this field. There's, like I said, the practice of law. There, uh, you know, you, there's government work. There's NGO work. There's human rights work. There's in-house corporate work. The internet, the field of international trade, is really quite varied which is one of the things that makes it so exciting. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, there's a, there's a very important and, and I think meaningful trend toward wanting to balance personal life and professional life. But on any given day, that balance is not possible. And I think it's important to recognize that and, be okay with that early on. Be honest with yourself about 
what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, because finding that balance between professional life and personal life looks different at each, each stage. Perhaps you have young children at home. Perhaps you have aging parents at home. Perhaps you're at a different, more junior or more senior stage in your career. So balance looks different and it's not always achievable on any given day, but, but take the time to, to consider how you allocate your time, the kind of habits you've developed, and reevaluate those time commitments regularly so that you are getting as close to that kind of balance um, as, as you would like and as, as works for you um, at any given stage in your, in your life and your career. So that's, that's what I would say. And, uh, and you're right, Heather, I do love, I do, I do love giving advice. I guess that's what makes me a good lawyer, right? Yes. It's one of the prerequisites, I believe, is to have an opinion. Yes, exactly. Um, Yeah. Well, this has been great. I mean, I could go on. Uh, This has just been so interesting. I I have like 40 different follow-up questions that that I think would be interesting. Um, But so maybe we'll do a part two next year, but it's been really nice to have you on the podcast and um, thanks a lot. Thanks, Heather. This has been fun. For additional information on this and other topics, please visit kellydry.com. Kelly Dry has podcasts available through your podcast provider.